0: Hello and welcome to the Skeleton Factory Podcast, episode 45, 45, 45. The 45, 45, 45, it's 45, I can see that, this is Adam coming to you from Austin, Texas, and today, tonight, I am recording this in the evening. I'll be taking a look at films that um, focus around the subject of teenage female rebellion. There's a lot of films like this, but um, there's some films seem to fit in this category, but not, but aren't necessarily in the same category. So I'm going to hone in on films such as these. And these films are more than just the story of rebellious teen girls. These characters can be seen as anti-heroes. These girls are not exactly role models, and that's okay. They are characters that garner a certain amount of celebrity or attention inside of their uh given worlds for both good and bad reasons but the movies that i'm going to be sort of highlighting on this episode are more in the realm of um well i'm gonna i'm gonna basically present them in the um In level of severity, (laughs) basically like the least fucked up to the most fucked up. And I mean, granted, these aren't the most fucked up movies ever, but in terms of subject matter, I'm going to kind of just amp up things as I go along. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to blow through a bunch of movies. Okay. And uh, I'm going to, I'm recording this at night. And I came home after a very long day of cutting hair at the barber shop, and today was one of those days where I wonder why do I continue to cut hair at a barber shop. And um, some days are better than others. Today was one of those days that felt like it dragged on, and um. That being said, I came back home to my <laughs> lovely residence here in Austin, Texas, and had a nice uh, shot of bourbon. And then I had a beer. And then I had a uh, gin and tonic with a nice healthy pour of gin and made myself some dinner that I shared with the puppy. Ellie, the Skeleton Factory dog. And then um, now I'm talking to you. So I'm a little calmed down. I'm a little bit more relaxed. And um, I'm going to just plow through a whole bunch of movies. And uh, they're movies that I um, that I like. I like all the movies that I'm going to talk about. So I, I can just say uh, right off the bat, I do recommend all these films that I'm going to be talking about. But um, let's just jump right into it, shall we? Let's get into a film called Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. A film that was released on October of 1982. 39 years and 11 months ago, Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains came out. And um, I'm just gonna put like sort of a disclaimer since I'm kind of presenting these films on the level of uh, severity. Um, in ladies and gentlemen, the Fabulous stains, we have um, uh, subjects such as uh, uh, young teams with uh, broken homes, uh, shitty parents, and likable but shitty protagonists. So there's not um, an obvious moral sort of uh, lesson to be learned from this movie. Um, Unless I guess you're watching it with a sort of skeptical, cynical pair of eyes. But Let's see. Ladies and gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. From 1982, directed by Lou Adler, who um, for most of his career... Focused more on uh, producing films such as the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Now, Lou Adler didn't do a ton of directing. He directed this film, and he directed what is probably, arguably, the best Cheech and Chong movie, which is Up in Smoke. So, <clears throat> the story goes... Uh, the character of Corinne Burns played by a 17 year old Diane Lane. And Diane Lane like really kind of crushed the 80s, right? She did well after she did um, this film, she went on to do Rumblefish. she was in the Outsiders and she was in streets of fire. So she had a pretty strong run in the 80s. And now she's, uh, I don't know what she's doing now, but uh, she was in the, uh... okay, so that's Ellie. And uh, she, Ellie has a collapsed trachea and also has the, she she likes to interrupt the recording of of the show on a regular basis with her incessant uh, coughing. We also have the character of Jessica McNeil played by a 16 year old Laura Dern who was freshly emancipated for this role. And um, there's been quite a few sort of um, notable uh, children actors who became emancipated from their parents in order to um, work in film such as Drew Barrymore and what's homegirl's name from Scream? Rose McGowan. That was her name. Rose McGowan. But, I mean, the more you read into it, the, I mean, I've heard some places that Laura Dern got emancipated because her mother didn't want her to do the movie. So she got emancipated so that she can. But really, at the end of the day, People get emancipated to do movies so that they can sidestep child labor laws. That's really what it boils down to. I'm sure maybe one or two actresses, actors, have um, emancipated themselves from their parents in order to, uh, you know, keep their money or whatever, but Lord Dern got emancipated in order to... uh, just basically work more than eight hours. And um, I mean, Lord, in the 80s, like, I mean, you had Blue Velvets and Wild at Heart, but like, if I, okay, here's something weird that I had to think about it was like, if somebody asks you what had a wider gap of time. Was there a wider gap of time between the movie Blue Velvet and Wild at Heart or Wild and Heart and Jurassic Park? Now, I think people instinctively would say there was probably a bigger gap between Wild at Heart and Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park being 1993. But the gap between Blue Velvet and Wild at Heart is actually longer. It's twice as long as the gap between Wild at Heart and Jurassic Park. There's three years between Wild at Heart and Jurassic Park and six years between Blue Velvet and Wild at Heart. So I think, I don't know, that's interesting to think about in terms of um, sort of when movies were made. Also, I forget that, like, fucking Wild at Heart was, like, a 1990 movie. It's weird. It's, it's weird to think about that, like, Wild at Heart came out after the Michael Keaton, Tim Burton, Batman movie. I don't know. It's weird. Uh, I get older, and timelines like that, like, sort of, um, I don't know. They get tangled up in my mind. Um. Anyways, also... We have the character of Tracy Burns, who is Diane Lane's character, uh, Corrine Burns' sister. And Tracy Burns is played by a 22-year-old Marin Cantor, who, I mean, at this point, I mean, (laughs) well before this point, has uh, stopped acting. But she was in a movie uh, the year before... Um before this came out, uh, well, this movie came out in 82. So in 1981, she was in a movie called the loveless with uh, Willem Dafoe, who was uh, in wild at heart with Laura Dern and streets of fire with Diane Lane. So fuck six degrees of separation of uh, Kevin Bacon. Uh, I think the, Two degrees of separation of Willem Dafoe is far more fascinating. <laughs> so let's just jump into the movie. So basically, um, <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous stain. So, so, uh, after being fired from her fast food job by an uncredited Brett Spiner who you may know as Lieutenant Commander Data from Star Trek, The Next Generation. Um, he's literally in the movie for like one second, but it's clearly Brett Spiner. It's fantastic. So um, so Corinne gets fired on national television. Uh, there's like this local... Uh, basically, they... Uh, all of our characters live in this fictitious town in Pennsylvania. And, um, I think it's a fish, fictitious town. I don't think it's actually a real town, but, um, there's like this news report of sort of like, how does this little town in Pennsylvania still survive? And so they go to this fast food place and they happen to catch, um, what was it, they interview they uh, they interview Corinne Burns and she basically gets herself fired live on TV by Brett Spiner and she's like this town died years ago and she basically has this fucking childish outburst on television, but but basically, uh, Corinne became the, like, catch-me-outside girl overnight. She was, like, the 1980s version of the catch-me-outside girl. So after this uh, news report went out, um, thousands of letters of support flooded the new the, the news station in support of Corinne. So the, uh, like, smug newscaster guy who goes to interview Corinne at her house where she lives with her sister Tracy and uh, their mother, uh, Corinne and Tracy's mother uh, died six months earlier from lung cancer at the age of 38, by the way, which is weird. You know, like I know people who've been smoking far longer before cancer got them. my Like, my stepdad, I think, started smoking when he was, like, 15, maybe younger, like 13, and he didn't die of lung cancer until he was 69 years old, (laughs) so so I don't know what um, Corinne's mom was doing. I don't know what the fuck she was smoking, but she ended up dying of lung cancer when she was 38, so that's the story we have now, so... um, and the circumstances are such where Corinne and Tracy basically have basically have the house, and then um, the only real relatives they have that are still alive is their aunt, who also lives in town. Who uh, and her aunt is the mother of Laura Dern character, so Laura Dern is their cousin. Okay, so this TV interview gets so much out of the way. Like it was a really good setup to the movie. So they basically, uh, just in this interview, they they we know we find out that the uh, Corinne and Tracy's father was never around. Their mother is dead. Um, she has neither one of them have a job. They have no high school diplomas. And they smoke, which is great. Even though uh, Corinne and Tracy's mother died of lung cancer, they they smoke because why wouldn't you smoke? Because when I was, I mean, when I was sixteen, you know, I was smoking like a pack of Marlboro Reds a day. Okay, I was crushing boxes of fucking what we called cowboy killers, which was Marlboro Reds. So of course, of course, she smokes. So when Mister Newsman with his phony sincerity <laughs> when it when he asks like what are you gonna do with your life what are you gonna do with your life remember that remember that from the yeah, the twisted sister music video i want to rock i watched that music video recently and um it's it's fucking psychotic There's there's sometimes you watch something that came out in the 80s and you look at it and you're like, this is only the result of copious amounts of cocaine and. And negligence. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I remember I want to rock being a better music video and I watched it recently and it's it's not amazing. But, um, so the guy asked, like, so, like, you basically have no prospects, um, in terms of job or education or anything like that. So what do you, what are you going to do with yourself? And, um, and Corinne says that she's going to basically be a rock star with, with Tracy and Jessica and their band called the Stains. So she takes advantage of sort of having a, yeah, a news camera in her face to hyperband. So, um, which is, that's a running theme in, ladies and gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. Kareem sort of takes advantage of the media and uses it to her advantage in order to promote her band, which really is. Not that good of a band. I mean, this. I mean, at this point into the movie, you you don't even hear their music. You never see them play up until this point, at least. You you don't know what they sound like. You know they're a band, but you don't. But you don't know if they're any good or not, and they're not actually. <laughs> they're not very good at all. Um. So these TV appearances get the stains on a tour headlined by. The Metal Corpses, which is this sort of older one-hit wonder glam band whose singer is, he's the equivalent of like all the members of KISS, like their worst qualities like smooshed into one person. And that's who the metal corpses singer is, and he's uh, he's played by uh, Fee Waybill, who was the lead singer of the band the Tubes. If you're a fan of the Tubes, I'm not, I'm not really into the Tubes. It's really not. Of all the bands that came out in the '80s, they may have been around the '70s for all I know, but uh, the, I know the Tubes as being an '80s band, and I don't really uh, remember them have any songs that i give a shit about but um so um but yes uh yes the singer of the tubes feeway bill he he plays the lead singer of the of this band called the metal corpses in the in the movie and so anyways the uh the middling the middle act is the is this band called the looters and it and the and it's fucking sweet it's 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 the Looters features Steve Jones and Paul Cook from the Sex Pistols on guitar and drums, and uh, and Paul Simonon from the Clash on bass, and oh, and the great Ray Winstone as the character of Billy on vocals. And if you're not familiar with Ray Winstone, he's one of those guys who like, you may have seen in a movie, but you didn't realize you saw him. Um, I mean, Ray Winstone I know uh, from the Alan Clark film Scum, which is a fucking fantastic movie, and um, I'd love to do an episode on it someday. Um, I I would love to just cover a bunch of Alan Clark movies just in general. Um, I know... I don't remember what episode it was, but I do talk about this short film that Alan Clark did called the elephant. And, um, it's outstanding. And, <laughs> and, you know, there's like, n- there's not a single line of dialogue in it, but it's a, it's incredibly powerful. If you can, if you look up Alan Clark's, uh, elephant, um, I'm sure you can find it somewhere, but it's, it's an interesting short film. But um, yeah, the Alan Carter film, Scum, uh, starred Ray Winstone. Uh, Ray Winstone was also in uh, Quadrophenia. But, he, but I mean, he was essentially a kid in those movies. Um, he was also in uh, Sexy Beast with the guy who played Gandhi. Uh, <laughs> and um, he was also in The Departed. He was one of uh, Jack Nicholson's. He was like Jack Nicholson's right hand dude, you know, because like Jack Nicholson was a um, like a gangster guy. Uh, Ray Winstone was the character of Mister French, and Ray Winstone, like in in life, was like a gi- legit fucking badass and shit. Like, love Ray Winstone, and his character, his character of Billy, and this is really good. It's really. I mean, he, every scene that he's in is great and it really kind of glues the movie together because you need somebody, I don't know, his his characters, like the movie's not about him, but his character is a very, like, um, a very important glue in the movie. So, um, so in the movie, the, the band, the looters have a song called, uh, I think it's just called the Professionals. That song, which we have a great scene where um, the looters play the Professionals on stage, and I mean, it's fucking Steve Jones and fucking uh, Paul Cook and fucking Paul Simonon on stage, and it's fucking it's cool. <laughs> like, like that band could have probably been a real band. <laughs> like that's how good it was um but they have this song called the professionals and eventually this song gets ripped off by the stains and the and from that song it ultimately along with their sort of like manipulation in the uh, manipulating the media kind of launches them into superstardom that's basically what the movie's about It's basically this band that has like no talent that basically uses everyone, (laughs) everyone that they come in contact with in order to propel themselves into some type of celebrity. And um, I'm not saying that's right. And I'm not saying that's, you know, if you're a celebrity, you should have some type of meaningful talent because, you know. I'm sure. there I mean, there's a lot of celebrities that are just like useless cunts that don't really contribute anything to any meaningful art form. Some people are just famous because they're f- famous, <laughs> like they're famous for being famous. But, the, but basically, in this story, the the stains rip off this this other band's song and then become famous from it. So. Uh, <laughs> That that that's basically the point of the movie like you can fucking use and step on everybody in order to get to the top, and it's totally fine. Because your principles and your morals and your soul is for sale if someone's willing to pay for it. That's <laughs> and that's the moral of the story. To ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous dance. I do want to point out just to be a nerd here for a minute. Um So in the movie there's a couple of scenes where Ray Winstone calls his manager and his manager is played by a guy named David Cleanon. And <laughs> David Cleanon you'll know as he's the character of Palmer from John Carpenter's The Thing. So um so in the thing, there was like two helicopter pilots, right? There was the R.J. McCready character played by Kurt Russell, and then there was fucking Palmer, and Palmer was like a stoner dude, like him and Keith. Uh, Keith David had a they would like bunk together and just hung out and smoked weed and shit. Um, but yeah, th- so that guy, that guy is uh, he is the looters manager in this movie. So, but when he appears on screen, I I, I get super stoked. I'm just like, fuck yeah, there's Palmer. And I mean, he made this movie like right, I think right before the thing, like in a very small window of time, he did this movie and then he did fucking the thing. So to me, that's great because I love the thing. The thing is as close to a perfect horror movie as you can get, really, in my opinion, for my money, I you know, in terms of a that's why I don't do a star rating for the show or on a scale of one to 10 or one to five or one out of a hundred. I kind of have a loose grading scale and in my head, I kind of base um, every movie against like movies like the thing, because the thing is about as close to a 10 as you can get um and like blade runner is the closest thing to it. like a 10 you're ever going to get so that's kind of how i judge things and i mean at least on this show i usually just give like a flat recommendation or a non-recommendation so and i already said before i recommend this movie so um and david cleanon who was also um he also did a ton of television in the eighties. Uh, he he did. Um, <laughs> there was a show that was only on for like a couple of years, and it was and it was around when I was a kid, and it was called Sledgehammer. And Sledgehammer is basically like, <laughs> like if you took Dirty Harry and mixed it with like the Naked Gun. And it's neither that good it's not that good of an action show and it's not that good of a comedy show. It sort of floats in the middle. <laughs> uh, that's Sledgehammer and but it, it leans a little more towards the naked gun side than it does the dirty hairy side. But anyways, I when I, I still I have a soft spot in my heart for Sledgehammer. So anyways, um David Cleanon was uh in an episode called "Sledge in Toyland," and David on play. <laughs> is, is this too specific and nerdy for you? Okay, I'm sorry, but I'm gonna continue anyways. David cleanup plays this guy in the Sledgehammer episode uh, "Sledge in Toyland," where he's a uh, he's like this genius toy maker. I mean, I guess he's not genius, he's just, like, the toys look kind of shitty, but he basically is this nerdy toy maker who's wearing glasses and has a bow tie on, and he, he, he invents toys for this company, and the guy who owns the company gets murdered by one of his toys, and they suspect that he's the murderer, because he's also having an affair with, like, the owner of the company's wife, but turns out he didn't kill him. It was like the, uh, the the owner of the rival toy company. He was the one that actually killed him. Anyways, none of that matters. <laughs> also, David Kleino was on an episode of another show that I absolutely love. It's one of my favorite television shows of all time. Um, and Sledgehammer is not one of my favorite television shows of all time. I like Sledgehammer a lot, but it's, it's not one of my favorite of all time. Um I I am talking about WKRP in Cincinnati. That is one of my favorite television shows of all time. It's a and uh <laughs> Clean on is in this episode called The Consultant where he plays this like silk shirt wearing cocaine weirdo guy who basically um his job is to like go inspect radio stations for, um, basically, like, he's a consultant, like, like, he kind of uh, judges and rates a radio station's efficacy, like, how good of a station are you, like, are you following sort of industry standards, and of course, WKRP in Cincinnati is not, because it's filled with all these weirdos who work there, and, um, I don't know, it's, it's a decent episode, but... David Cleanon's in, and, 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 um, yeah, he's a cocaine weirdo. I miss cocaine. <laughs> I haven't done cocaine in a long time, and I don't really desire to, especially with, um, how much fentanyl is around in the world. Like, I'll probably never realistically do cocaine ever again. Um, I mean, I would probably do, I'd probably snort meth, Before I snort cocaine ever again. Because I think meth is... You know... I don't know how much fentanyl would be in meth. But meth just seems like it's so dirty anyways. Like, why would some dude in a fucking cartel even bother... Trying to... You know, step on a brick of fucking meth with fentanyl. It just seems like it'd be a waste of their time. Um, anyways... (laughs) Um... Basically, I'm going to kind of just, I'm just going to kind of give a blanket recommendation for, uh, for, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous stains. I like it a lot. I think it's a fun movie and, um, you know, there's, I mean, it's, it's got a lot of, it's got an interesting cast and, um, uh, also, uh, EG Daily is in it. You, you, you know, EG Daily, EG Daily is, uh, the voice of, uh tommy pickles <laughs> in, in the uh, rugrats uh cartoon if you were a child in um in the 90s you know the rugrats she was also the character of buttercup on powerpuff girls <laughs> um what was it what else was she in she was also in um She's also in Devil's Rejects, and I think she was also in Thirty One. Not hundred percent sure. I only seen Thirty One twice, and I only remember like half of it. Um, <laughs> um but of, but I mean, of course, everyone knows E.G. Daily from being. Um, she was Dottie in Wee's Big Adventure. If you're as old as I am, I think everyone had a crush on Dottie. Dottie was absolutely adorable. And EG Daily is adorable. So, (laughs) but yeah, watch, um, ladies and gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. It's streaming everywhere. You know, shitty girl, garage, punk band goes on tour it uses and abuses all these men in order to uh get themselves on MTV and um but the journey it's not, it's you know it's it's not the destination it's the ride and the ride of uh of this film is is great and i uh, i recommend it so let's before i get to the other movies um, well, let's see. Next, I wanted to get to um, the film Smithereens, which actually came out 40 years ago this month. It is currently September of 2022, and the film Smithereens came out on September the 11th, 1992. 9 11. Yeah. Yeah. But before I get to that um, some other uh, movies that I think are just honorable mentions and um, there was a movie called Times Square that is also um, a New York based movie It was shot in New York shot in Times Square you know hence the title um, Times Square and it's basically this sort of politician's daughter in New York and this sort of like wild street kid who uh, fancies themselves a rock and roller basically uh, break out of a mental hospital and then they go live on the street <laughs> and uh, they've kind of become a sort of they become kind of like the girl version of project mayhem from fight club. Like they, they get into all kinds of mischief. They, they, their signatures, they, there's, they throw TVs off of buildings and it's amazing. They didn't fucking kill anybody, <laughs> but that's sort of their thing. And it sort of inspires other people in the city to just throw their TV out the window. And, um, and then ultimately they have like this big concert in the middle of Times Square, you know, um, that they had to do on the sneak tip because the police are after them because they've been breaking all these fucking laws and inciting rights and shit like that. And uh, Tim Curry is also in it. He plays a radio DJ. I don't know. I wouldn't say it's a great movie, but it's a good movie. It's worth seeing. So, I I mean, I would definitely recommend Times Square. Check that out. Also, I'd recommend... um, the film freeway starring a very Jesus. It was like an 18 year old Reese Witherspoon. It's from the nineties. It's all fucked up. It has like the, this, that sort of 1990s indie movie chaos feel to it. And, um, it's a lot of fun. It's sort of a modern, uh, retelling of little red riding hood. <laughs> And I actually cover this uh, uh, freeway. That is, I cover it on episode 35 of Skeleton Factory. On the episode titled, Women Who Kill People. (laughs) And on that episode, I cover uh, freeway, which is from 1996. The year I started high school. (laughs) Uh, I cover a 2020 film called Love Dump um, made by a guy named Sam Hell, who, he, I mean, he's about as close as you're going to get to a real indie director nowadays. Like his films are not streaming anywhere. The only way you can get a hold of his movies is, um, I think I saw Love Dump streamed on Vimeo. I think he has a Vimeo page and... I had to rent it and pay for it and watch it. And it's basically this uh, trans woman is a serial killer and you just kind of witness this killer's... I, I think the whole movie takes place in like a weekend or something. Like basically they're, they're sort of like murder rampage and you... <laughs> And, and, and before you get too excited about Love Dump, if you're not interested in watching a trans woman jerk off her male uh, penis, <laughs> then maybe you don't want to watch Love Dump because there's like three master, masturbation scenes. So um, Also, the, there's not a lot of gore for being a serial killer movie. Anyways, uh, <laughs> um, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, on uh, on episode thirty five, I also cover a film called Series Seven, which is a two thousand one movie, which I love, and um, it stars the uh, the girl that was in Buffalo Bills like fucking pits he had in his basement in Sounds of the Lambs that that lady it lo- it rubs the lotion on the skin yeah the the lady who was rubbing the lotion on her skin is the star of series seven. The entire movie is played like a, like a reality TV show. And it's a competition show where the contestants have to um, kill each other (laughs) until there's only one person left standing. And um, so, you know, if they win, they get to move on to the next, you know, the next episode And, uh, you know, I, if once they win so many episodes, they, they basically get their freedom and it sounds silly and it is silly, but it's, I like it. I like series seven a lot. It's, I watched it when I first moved out of my hometown of Manteca, California to San Francisco, there was a handful of movies that I watched over and over again. And series seven was one of them. It was like series seven chopper. John Carpenter's Halloween. How did I even get on that? Oh, yeah. I was just mentioning other movies about, like, young teenage girls who are uh, just wild and rebellious and doing fucked up shit. (laughs) But um, in my heart, I find that probably the greatest... Teenage girl who, you know, is, you know, is fighting against the world would be, um, The Legend of Billie Jean. That movie's absolutely amazing, starring Helen Slater. And if you have not seen The Legend of Billie Jean, I would highly, highly recommend it. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's one of the, I mean, not just for my from my childhood, but I would say Legend of Billy Jean. If I if I had to make a list of like the best movies from my childhood, I would probably put The Legend of Billy Jean in the top, maybe even the top ten. So my childhood. Okay, so um, I was born in '82, so I would say pretty much everything from about '84 to. Ninety nine, maybe. I would, I would probably consider that my childhood. But Legend of Billy Jean is way up there, and it has the song "Invincible," written by Pat Benatar, which is like, f- like the greatest fucking movie song ever. <laughs> it's better than it's it's any eighties movie song you can think of Pat Benatar's invincible is way better than it's better than eye of the tiger from Rocky it's it's better than fucking um I don't know highway to the danger zone from Top Gun it's it's a it's it's a superior song anyways um <laughs> let's get into smithereens smithereens From 1982, directed and produced by Susan Seidelman, who went on to do the film Desperately Seeking Susan in 1985, starring the distended blow-up doll known as Madonna and the lovely Rosanna Arquette. So hot. Um, Yeah, 1982. 1982. One of the greatest years for films ever. And since um, as of this recording, the Halloween season is creeping up upon us. So if you want to see some really good 1982 horror films, you can uh, turn off the lights and curl up on the couch with your friends or your your fuck buddy or <laughs> your pet cats um, and watch uh, such Wonderful Uh, 1982 horror films like Slumber Party Massacre or Halloween 3 season of The Witch or Creepshow 1. Uh, The Thing, of course, John Carpenter's The Thing. Uh, The original Poltergeist came out in 82, so did Friday 13th part 3. Pieces. Pieces. Because you don't need to go to Texas for a chainsaw massacre, and of course, um, Basket Case came out in 1982. And if that's if those movies are too spooky for you, maybe you can watch uh, the original Conan the Barbarian, uh, or Eating Raul, or uh, Vice Squad, which is a fantastic film about a a psychotic. Um, pimp cowboy <laughs> who's trying to hunt down and kill a uh, prostitute that snitched him out to the police, and uh, it's a fucking really good movie. Uh, yeah, episode thirty-seven. I do an entire episode of it about it. So yeah, Vice Squad. And uh, what else from nineteen eighty-two? Oh my god, uh, the the greatest film from nineteen eighty-two, Blade Runner. So you can. If you get all, um, if you get too burnt out on horror movies, you can uh, watch Blade Runner during the Halloween season. And there's a bunch of other stuff coming out, right? We have, uh, let's see, the new Hellraiser Hulu series movie. I think it's just a movie. Yeah, I I've, I've saw the trailer for it. Um, it just came out today. It's kind of a short trailer. Um. Don't know exactly how I feel about it yet. Um, it looks, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, there's been like 10 other Hellraiser movies. So looking at this new trailer in comparison is, um, I don't know. <laughs> it's hard to say. Uh, let's see. If I was on the spot, I'd give the trailer a, um, Let's call it a c minus. <laughs> I'm gonna watch it, so that's whatever. Um, anyways, um, Smithereens. It's the film about uh, about a young lady named Wren who I, um, is played by Susan Berman. I don't know. Uh, the director, Susan Seidelman, really likes the name Susan. Like, this movie stars a Susan. She's a Susan. And then the movie she did after this was called Desperately Seeking Susan. Maybe that's a complete coincidence. I don't know. I do know that Susan Berman was not originally cast as the character of Wren. There was a scene they were shooting where... The Wren character was running across a, I believe it was a fire escape, but didn't know that the fire escape just ended, (laughs) and like ran off the fire escape and then fell and broke her leg. So they had to recast, and they recasted uh, Susan Berman, who I think did a wonderful job. So Wren, played by Susan Berman, is uh, an aspiring groupie who manages to remain a somewhat sympathetic character. And uh, she's she's very much a, um, <laughs> I mean, despite being a sort of ornery, manipulative mooch who leeches off of friends, family, and total strangers just to get by, she's, um, I mean, she's a pitiful... Protagonist. The movie opens up where, um, well, first, the movie opens up where there's a woman standing on a subway platform wearing these, like, these sort of cool sunglasses with, like, a checkerboard pattern on them. And uh, Ren walks by her, and as she's walking by, she snatches these glasses out of the lady's hand and then disappears into the subway. So that's our first introduction to Ren. Um, I mean, it does coordinate quite nicely with her, uh, her skirt, but um, (laughs) yeah, that, that, that is our protagonist, everybody. And um, so while in a subway car, wheat pasting flyers of her own face on the walls of the subway car um, with the words, who is this emblazoned on these flyers and I don't know. It's 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 really not flyers promoting anything except for her and the sort of like who is this mysterious woman? I don't know. It's something someone would ask in the comment section of like a Pornhub video. <laughs> you ever look in the comment section of a a Pornhub video and just see what like who's typing comments? But inevitably, there's always someone who's like. Who, who is this? Who is she? What's her name? Ugh. Anyways, uh, <laughs> so we're introduced to Wren, uh, and she sits down across from um, the character of Paul, and, and we're introduced to him. He's a tall, shy fellow from Montana who's sort of kind of stranded in New York temporarily. And... Um, the character of Paul, played by um, Brad, I believe his, his name is pronounced Rin. It's, it's spelled R-I-J-N, but I, I believe his name is Brad Rin. And he was in a movie that I is on my watch list that I haven't seen yet, but I really want to. It's called Special Effects, and it stars Eric Bogosian. Who you know from uh, Talk Radio. He's also in uh, Under Siege 2. (laughs) Um, And he's also in um, the Safety Brothers Uncut Gems. He plays Adam Sandler's kind of, I don't know, kind of booky, kind of pseudo mob connected uh, cousin. Anyways, fucking Eric Boghossian is fucking fantastic. And um, Special Effects also has uh, Zoe Lund, who you'll know as Miss 45 from uh, the film Miss 45, (laughs) Um, the Abel Ferrara film. And she's also in the other uh, Abel Ferrara film. That's one of my favorite movies of all time uh, Bad Lieutenant so yeah um look out for that um special effects I definitely uh that is on my um that is on my list of movies to watch uh my list of movies is so fucking long it's crazy it's what I love about um that's what I love about film but it's you know particularly kind of cult films and kind of like it's it's like the rabbit hole is so deep. No matter how many movies you watch, there's always like fucking a million more movies (laughs) and and you, and, um, I'd like to think I'd be able to watch all of them, but, um, I probably won't, but I'm, I'm kind of glad I'll never be able to watch all these movies that are sort of like these grimy, grimy, distant cousins of kind of uh, dirtier grindhouse type films. But anyways, um, <laughs> Brad, Brad Wren is in the movie special effects. That's, that was kind of my long winded point anyways. Uh, so his character of Paul is, uh, he, he meets her on the subway train and he's interested in Wren, but he's not exciting enough to really get Ren's uh, attention and throughout the movie Ren sort of strings poor Paul along and I mean until he finally gets the point that not only is she not interested in him but she's not really interested in anybody really I mean she's interested in being a tag-along star fucker who can leverage people to get ahead even though she has she does have aspirations of being in a band or being I don't know like a famous musician but she has neither the talent nor the drive to really do it um, she just loves the idea of it, really. And she's drawn to people like that. And But before we really understand who Ren is, early into the movie, uh, Paul tracks down Ren one night and asks her out on a date to dinner and a movie, which she takes him up on, but to her... It's free dinner and a movie. <laughs> and to Paul, it's like, oh, I came to this big city. I don't know anybody. And there's this one person I know. And she seems really neato. And I, you know, maybe I can take her out on a proper date like a gentleman. So we cut to the movie theater scene. And <laughs> the movie theater scene is great, by the way. They're, they're watching this like fictitious monster movie that's in black and white and it's it only exists in this movie's world which i love when movies do that when they make movies that are just they're made just for this movie <laughs> it's about this spooky man who sicks this parasitic monster bug on a terrified woman And um, this is in the fake movie inside this movie. That is Um, actually and the woman who's getting attacked by this, like, I don't know, fucking bug is uh, the uh, is actress Cookie Mueller, who is a staple in many early John Waters films, like like all of them, basically. So like multiple maniacs. Female Trouble, Desperate Living, Pink Flamingo, she's in all of them. And so she's in this little this little <laughs> fake monster movie uh, also, which is I th- think is pretty neat. And if you listen in the scene, the spooky man says this. Listen. You're in a deep sleep. At last, the time is here. It has been a long waiting, but over now, time to invade the bodies of these things called humans. This specimen excites me. A perfect subject. Anonymous creature that will never amount to the faintest echo of the tiniest whisper in the thunder of time. A blithely ignorant human female. fears, dream no dreams of escape. Okay, so this is interesting because in the scene... Paul is trying to maybe put his arm around Ren, which is, like, the total, like, like dude move, right? It's, like, he's gonna do the old put-his-arm-around-the-fucking-girl move, right? But Ren isn't having it. Like, her whole body language is, you can tell he's trying to, like, (laughs) kind of position himself to throw his arm over her, but she kind of, like, leans forward and is, like, kind of leans to the side like, I don't want your fucking arm around me, asshole. Um and so while Spooky Man is uh talking to uh Cookie Mueller, uh <laughs> uh Ren is like staring longingly at the screen um you know while ignoring Paul. She's like she's really kind of focused on the screen and in like a sort of like smiling as if the guy on the screen is sort of uh, speaking to her, like seducing her. Um, And to me, this scene shows that Ren sees men as parasites while simultaneously being a parasite herself. That's what I took from it. By the way, the the monster movie scene uh, ends with, The bug starting to feed upon Cookie Mueller, but she tears off its um, phallic-like mouth (laughs) that's sucking onto her neck. Um, And when she tears it off, um, it it starts spraying its insect blood all over her. And the insect blood uh, looks like a a huge load of cum all over her uh, neck and tits. And, um, when the spooky man goes to like, stop her, he has like a pair of scissors in his hand and she starts fighting back and she like bites the spooky man's hand and like wrestles the scissors away from him and then stabs him in the eye. And that's kind of where that scene ends. And that's where the whole like date at the movie theater scene ends. And then, you know, we cut to the next scene there's nothing really like that in the whole movie. And I'm like, that little scene was really terrific. So after this, we're introduced to the character of Eric played by Richard hell, who is, um, you'd probably recognize from the band television. He was also in Richard hell and the voidoids. Um, and his character is pretty good and pretty good. I mean, pretty scummy. (laughs) But also kind of, um, I don't know, he has a certain amount of relatability and that's kind of everyone in the movie. Everyone's kind of broke and young and pathetic. <laughs> so, um, so, during the date with Paul after the, they leave the movie theater, uh, Ren recognizes him uh, getting out of a car and, and but she recognizes him as the singer of the Of a defunct band called the Smithereens. That's the title of the movie. Um, And she's like, oh, hey, I recognize that guy. And they go hang out at this dive barn. Um, (laughs) But she's talking uh, Eric's ear off. And uh, he's politely obliging. But after giving poor Paul the cold shoulder um, to go hang out with Eric... Keep in mind, they're supposed to be on a date (laughs) and Paul's in the corner and Paul's in the corner playing like Pac-Man. And while, um, I don't know, Ren's trying to become Eric's new best friend. So, I don't know, after a while, Paul has seen enough and he, you know, he leaves in a huff. And now, okay, so the Eric is now more or less a has-been who squats at his creepy punk friend's basement apartment, okay? So his whole run with the, um well, the fictitious band in the movie, the Smithereens, like, they've already had kind of had their heyday, and now he's, like, kind of down on his luck and trying to get some kind of other music project up and running. But, oh, boy, Ren just thinks he is the, the coolest. So... <laughs> He ends up bringing Ren over uh, for a night of, I suppose, dirty uh, punk rock sex, which is gross. Uh, You know, even in my younger punk days, I never understood the whole, like, dirty punk rock thing. You know, just, like, unwashed thing. I did, like... Like nobody, nobody likes sour balls in their mouth, and the odor of an acrid vagina. Never really jibed with me. You feel me? So, (laughs) all right. So I think the uh, the Richard Hale character, Eric, I was supposed to come off as like a sexy rocker guy with a roguish edge, but. He always kind of came off like a dirty tweaker to me, but um, <laughs> that's just me. Um, probably because I grew up with dirty tweakers, and when I look at this guy, I'm like, "Oh yeah, he." I don't. I, I, <laughs> I could see a young girl finding him quite fetching, but but it, if you look at him more than a couple of seconds, it's kind of like ew. But. uh, so they go over to they go over to Eric's house, right? And she excuses herself to the little girl's room to, you know, freshen up. And she goes in there and she's like brushing her teeth and Eric's creepy roommate Billy is in there and that's how we're introduced to him. He's like standing in the corner with like his entire yes, <laughs> one of his hands is entirely wrapped in gauze and there's like blood on it. <laughs> Like it was gnawed by a dog or something, and Ren sitting there brushing her teeth, and she's like, "Like, oh hi," and she's like, "Oh, um, whose toothbrush is this?" <laughs> and Billy's like, "Oh, um, it's mine, but you can use it." Ew, it's so gross. It it, it happens so quickly that you maybe you, you you'd miss it, but like she literally was like, "Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna." suck Richard Hell's dick real quick. Um, But before this, I'm just going to use some random person's toothbrush first. That's some fucking down on your luck, broke bitch shit right there. (laughs) So, um, you know, hey, no judgments. I've been broke. I haven't been that broke though. I'd rather just steal a toothbrush than, you know, just use someone else's. That's weird. I have a million stories like that. Like I was, I was living in this really big, nice fucking like, um, I don't even know what you would call, I guess it was just a huge fucking apartment. It was, it was was literally like the size of like a bank. (laughs) It was huge. Um, long story of how I ended up living there, but I basically became sort of like the de facto landlord there. And, um, instead of just paying the rent, I just moved in a bunch of people and then charge them a very small rent, which also included what my portion would have been. So I lived there free. I lived there with all these like weirdos. Um, <laughs> and I think at the absolute maximum capacity, I was living with, I think there was like six other people. Living there. That's how big it was. Like it wasn't even really crammed really. Um, but uh, one of my roommates who will go unnamed, but I've known this guy Forever. Um, I w- okay. So one day I'm I'm like, I have my dog, Ellie skeleton factory dog. And this is when she was like a, like a baby. I go to uh, give her a bath and she's got dog shampoo, right? Can't fucking find it. And I go up to his, um, this guy's bathroom and her fucking dog shampoos in his bathroom. And then, um, I'm like, is this fucking asshole so broke that he's not even, that he's using my dog's, expensive by the way, nice dog shampoo. And in, and indeed he was. I think he was using it also as a body wash and face cleanser. <laughs> it's, yeah. It was awkward bringing it up to him later, but he was like, oh, it's it's super nice though. I'm like, okay. So it's revealed as the film goes on. That, the, um, that behind Eric's charming exterior is a lowlife that is as much of a leech as Ren is. And there's this um, kind of beautiful, mysterious blonde woman that's always around um, Eric and Billy's apartment. And she's silenced most of the time. And later we find out that she's actually Eric's wife. And she's played by uh, Kitty Summerall, who's also in the movie Special Effects, along with uh, Brad Wren, Paul's, you know, character. So, um, so, yeah, we have got a connection from Smithereens. And we, we got characters from Smithereens and... Uh, fucking miss 45 in the same movie. It's pretty fucking sweet with Eric uh, Bogosian. I mean, so I got to see that goddamn movie anyways. So, <laughs> so Ren, okay. Ren heads back to her apartment to find out that she's been evicted, which is actually a pretty funny scene. It's tragic, but it's funny. And after this, she tries to go hustle some money off of her sister and her husband, who looks like uh, he looks like, uh, Tom Tolls <laughs> who is a—he's uh, the character of Otis in Henry of a serial killer—and uh, so she goes over there to try to like sweet talk them out of some money, but to no avail. So, so with nowhere to go, she goes back to Paul, who's you know he's staying in a van in a vacant lot. So that's kind of where uh, Paul's life had had brought him, but but they keep reiterating in the movie that like Paul's kind of this young dude who's sort of traveling around trying to, I don't know, discover himself or the world or something. And he's kind of temporarily stuck in New York and he has no intention of fucking staying at all. So, um, but Ren sort of figures that she can just stay with him because, well, she's entitled and Paul's kind of a pushover and she knows she could take advantage of him. So whenever she feels like it, she can. She knows she can just go knock on fucking... She doesn't even knock on the fucking door of the van. She just, like, opens the van and crawls and goes to sleep. She comes back to the van, and Paul puts his foot down and basically kicks her out. So good for Paul. And then we hard cut to the next scene where Paul is um, helping Ren break into her own apartment with pantyhose on their heads, looking like they just walked off of the... Devo's Jocko Homo video. But um, yeah, Paul had like, you know, a good 10 seconds of, you know, showing some backbone where he's like, you know what, Ren, get the fuck out of my van. I've had it with you. And then you just <laughs> comedically hard cut to the, him helping her break into her fucking apartment in the middle of the night. So they, they get fucking break into the apartment And uh, they get away before the mean old landlady uh, down the hall catches them. And afterwards, there's a scene where Paul is nice enough to clean up uh, Wren's wounds because when they were leaving, she like fell on her fell on her hip and got a gnarly road rash. And um, Paul in their back of the van, and Paul's like cleaning up her fucking road rash wounds. And Wren's like fucking landlady's dog fucking tipped her off that we were there man you should have just shot the fucking dog and i mean she said you should have shot okay why did she say that because they they established her that uh paul has a gun in his van and because when when paul decided to go on this fucking trip around the united states his father was like oh here here's a gun because if you end up in new york you might need this and paul seems like Paul's like a pacifist. Paul's not interested in, you know, fucking hurting anybody and stuff. But he has this gun in his van, and (laughs) fucking Ren's like, "Why didn't you just shoot the fucking landlady's dog?" And Paul's like, "He's like, well, I I don't even have bullets, so it's like." But Ren was really like. Wanted to kill the, shoot the landlady's fucking dog, which is like a, like a, like a, like a toy, uh, what was it a teacup poodle? <laughs> what a bitch. Uh, rent sucks. Uh, <laughs> and again, Paul keeps telling her like, yo, like at some point I'm going to be leaving town. So I don't know how much longer you can fucking mooch off me. And she's like, yeah, whatever, Paul. And then we uh, jump inside of, um, to, the, to Eric's apartment again. So also the timeline of this is like, you're not exactly clear, but you, you, you know, it's probably that night, maybe the next night for the end. Um, we could have seen where Wren's going through Eric's photos, his, his private photos in his bedroom that are inside of his bedside table. And she's like cutting she's like cutting out the photos of Eric's wife and like lighting, lighting that on fire. <laughs> it's fucking, fucking psycho. Um, And uh, <laughs> while she, Oh, by the way, she's also like sitting on his bed. You know, it's like, so Eric and his wife walk in and she's on the bed. Like, like, Oh, hi stranger. <laughs> and fucking like, Photo smoke still floating in the air, and Eric's like, like, look, bitch, you can't just break into people's places and expect them expect that they owe you something. (laughs) Like, I've literally met you one time and now you act like we're fucking best friends. And he's basically like, get the fuck out. Um and she does. She fucks off, but not before uh Ren gets her particle. Sludge on Eric's dipstick. If you catch my drift, then she goes and crashes at Paul's. And then the next day, uh, Ren's friend Cecile, um, so they're all hanging. Uh, she Ren's like hanging out at Cecile's house, right? And there's, uh, oh, by the way, so like, like Ren's like, hey, Cecile, why don't you let me crash at your place? Because, like, I don't know runs under the runs under the idea that like, she's going to go off to LA with Eric and it's going to, you know, it's going to be happening soon. Like this week I'm, I'm taking off, leaving New York, going to LA with Eric. And, um, and she's like, well, until like I leave, can I like stay with you? And Cecile's like, no, like I already live here with like two other people and like, it's not even really my apartment. And, Besides, my roommates fucking hate you. So. Oh, by the way, uh, one of Cecil's roommates is named Susan, by the way. So we have another Susan. <laughs> so then she goes back to Paul's. So Ren thinks she's playing Paul and Eric. She thinks she can bomb off Paul. Until she can take off with uh, Eric to L.A. And Paul is trying to be the good guy who wants to wants to get Wren out of the scummy streets of New York. And off to New Hampshire where he is planning to go. And Paul wants to start his new life there. So... He thinks uh, Ren may be uh, seeing that she has some limited options in life and should go with him because he's, you know, pretty fucking sprung on her. So Ren entertains the idea enough to give Paul hope, which is fucked up. It's a fucked up thing to do to somebody, to kind of give them hope like that and, you know with their emotions and shit but I mean she eventually fucks Paul which kind of secures her place to have somewhere to crash for now and one day Ren shows up to the van to find um, Eric there and I'm thinking like holy fuck Paul just lock the doors to your van Where's Paul? Don't know. But um, but somehow Eric found it and he was like sitting there waiting for Ren. So Eric convinces Ren to pull this like honey trap scam where Ren like ingratiates herself with this kind of married dorky businessman from out of town. And she's like, hey, yo, let's go back to your hotel and I'll toss you salad. You know, one of those things like, meet him at a bar, let's go back to your place sort of thing, right? So they jump into a cab, this uh, this businessman from out of town guy. He looks like, you know, he looks like he looks like uh, Les Nesman from WKRP in Cincinnati. If you don't know that reference, just uh, Google image it. Okay, I don't have... All day to explain, less Nessman to you. So, they, so they jump in a cab, and out of nowhere, Eric jumps into the cab too, and cab takes off. And the guys like, "Oh, what the hell is this?" And then Paul pulls a gun on the guy, and he's and they and him and Ren basically rob the guy, take all of his shit, and then they jump out of the cab and run back to Eric's house. And, you know, once they get there, they're kind of counting up all their all their loot, all the cash. They got the guy's fucking jewelry and all the shit. And they basically make a plan to make their big move to L.A. together. So she goes to um, bag her, her shit from Paul's van and is like, I'll be right back. So she goes to the van. And Paul's there and Paul's like. (laughs) but Paul has like no idea what's going on with her. Okay. So it's like, so she shows up to the van and Paul's like, Oh, Hey, remember that one time when we fucked and I caught further feelings for you than I already had. Um, well, I, I meant what I said about leaving town and you coming with me and Ren's like, Oh yeah, I'm leaving town too. And, and, um, I'm going to LA after all. And, and Paul's finally like pretty much has had it with her, you know, because he was under the impression like, okay, she's going to come with me we're going to get the fuck out of here. And then, you know, and Paul has like friends in New Hampshire and shit. And, and we can kind of start our lives over, over there. And she's like, no, nope, fuck that shit. I'm going to fucking LA with Richard Harrell and his fucking rotting teeth. <laughs> so finally, Paul has had enough of Ren's shit. And here is what that scene sounds like. Well, guess that's it. If I forgot anything you can have it. Oh, I left you the TV. It's too heavy to carry. I want your TV. I don't even know if it works anyway. So I guess you'll be leaving soon, huh? Yeah, I guess. Well, Vermont's gonna seem pretty dull after all this. New Hampshire. It'll be all right. I didn't say it wouldn't be okay. just said it might be boring. Well, see ya. Ren, you can't keep doing this forever. You can't just go in and use people when you feel like it. And then when you're done with them, you go and use somebody else. All you ever think about is yourself. The other people got feelings too. Don't you know that? Well, I guess I'm going now. You don't even know what I'm talking about, do you? Uh-huh. Paul, I just can't. I mean, New Hampshire. I don't even like trees. See ya. Harsh. So, Ren heads back to. Eric's, you know, bags up her shit, takes off to Eric's and finds that he has taken the money from the robbery and left. Eric's gone. And Ren's like, she realizes she got fucking scammed. She got tricked into pulling a fucking armed robbery with this fucking asshole. And now he just took the money and ran. And now he's going to go fucking, you know, manipulate and trick and deceive and fucking, fucking uh, leech on to somebody else. You know, some other girl. I've seen that, you know. Girls do that, you know. But guys do that maybe as much. I've seen a lot of guys who just, when I was younger, not now. I just don't associate (laughs) with people like that. But young dudes who just leech off their fucking girlfriends that they don't even give a fuck about. It's, It's kind of a sad thing to watch. You wonder how men ended up that way. You know. So, okay. So Ren goes back to the apartment. She can't get in. And finds that Eric's wife is there, like, sitting on the steps. And she explains to rent. Like, she basically hasn't spoken the entire movie. And she's basically like, he's gone. And um, he's like, you know, we got married. And he borrowed $600 from me when we first met. And he never paid me back. And she's only known him for a month also. Like, they... They dated for a couple of weeks and then immediately got married. And so, really, she's only known him for like a month. So she's like, Yeah, he owes me a bunch of money and he owes a bunch of other people money, but, uh, you know, he's gone now. So, Ren tries to go stay with her friend Cecile, but uh, her roommate Susan <laughs> says, uh, hell no nah to that shit. Uh, I don't want that bitch staying in, you know, this fucking apartment. So, <laughs> so now, uh, Wren's sort of out of friends and acquaintances. So now she really has nowhere to go. So Wren spends the night on the subway and then the next morning tries to go back to Paul's van and, you know, hoping that he's there. And when she gets there, uh, she finds the van is still there. And. You know, Paul will take her back and magically whisk her way to New Hampshire. Well, she gets there and uh, to find that Paul has sold the van to some local pimp who looks like um, Tom Sizemore with like John Lennon glasses on. So, yeah. So Paul's gone. He sold the van, and took the money and took off to New Hampshire and that was her last chance out of town and now it's gone for so she's walking with her bag now she's just a bag lady walking down the side of the road alone with her shit and some fucking rando pulls up in his convertible next to her and is like hey sweetheart uh <laughs> need a ride? Why don't you get in the car? And it's very insistent that she take a ride with him and, you know, um, Ren's trying to ignore the guy, but then she just eventually stops and turns and looks at him and you're like, like, oh, Ren, don't do it. (laughs) And then freeze frame and we don't know. Does Ren get into the car? We never find out. We fade to black. Credits. The end. And that my friends was smithereens and it's very good. I like it a lot. It is on, um, if you have the criterion channel streaming thing, it's there, or you can spend a whole bunch of money to actually buy a physical copy. I have to say buy physical copies of movies, like do it, just do it. Or if you're really into music, buy physical copies because, um, I don't know. The world is crazy right now and um you really should own physical copies of movies. <laughs> that's all I'm gonna say. Um, but yeah. So that's the end of Smithereens. And it's it's sad, but it's um you know, there's some lessons to be taken from this movie, and of course who doesn't love old New York from the 70s and early 80s. It's looks great on camera. And. Uh, also, this is a completely random, but when uh, Ren goes back to the van. And the pimp guy's working on the van because the fucking van doesn't work. <laughs> she goes to grab uh, the rest of her shit. Out of the back of the van all these p- local prostitutes that kind of hang around in this vacant lot where the fucking uh, van was parked this whole time are now kind of like hanging out in the van and they're all just sitting there fucking eating, talking shit, hanging out and stuff. And one of the, one of the prostitutes is like a fucking uh, trans prostitute. And the trans <laughs> prostitute is played by uh Chris Noth uh in his very very first movie role his first role in anything really and you'll know Chris Noth as he's the character of big in sex in the city or if you watch law and order he's uh, detective mike logan so yeah he's sitting there with like pantyhose on his head full face of makeup wearing fucking Bra and panties and all this shit. His very first role. Prostitute. New York. <laughs> just a little bit of trivia for you. Well. Um, again. I recommend Smithereens. Just like. I recommend. Ladies and gentlemen. The Fabulous Stains. So let's jump to the third. And final film. Which is, um, again, I, I, I ordered all of these movies in order of severity. So now let's jump into our third and final film. Out of the Blue from 1980, directed by Dennis Hopper. So, Out of the Blue... Just jumps straight into it. We open with Dennis Hopper, playing the character of Dawn, and his daughter CB, played by Linda Manns, driving down a country road, and Dennis Hopper, he's drinking, he's smoking, and um the scene is, is probably reminiscent to a lot of people who grew up in the, I don't know, anyone out there who may have been a child at some point may relate to this. Uh, I remember my my biological father smoked with the windows up <laughs> in his, in his uh, little Ford Ranger uh, pickup truck. And he'd be taking me and my brother to like karaoke bars during the daytime, and um, you know during his uh, court ordered, you know every other weekend visitation weekend, <laughs> you know. So, um, so Dennis Hoppers, he's driving a semi truck because that's his job. He's a he's a truck driver, and. He's drinking, he's smoking, he's laughing with uh, CB and he uh, isn't paying attention and T-bones a bus filled with kids and kills a whole bunch of them. Maybe all of them. You know, it's not exactly uh, It's not really made clear, but, you know, we get the scene of the semi crashing into the bus and um, yeah, that's how the movie opens <laughs> so but um, but this was just a flashback it was a dream it was a a dream of a flashback from the perspective of uh, Linda Mance's character CB we jump five years later from this horrific crash and now CB is well she was 10. When the uh, when the crash happened and now she's 15, she's living with her mom, who's working as a waitress and having a relationship with her boss. Very nice. And (laughs) and um, Dennis Hopper is in prison and. He's about to be released, so Linda Mance got Linda Mance is great. Linda Mance had a very limited acting career. But what she did do was, she did some really good stuff. And Linda Mance has this sort of like young Jackie Earl Haley from Bad News Bears meets Matt Dillon from uh, Over the Edge kind of feel to her. You may recognize Linda Mance as the character of Peewee from the movie The Wanderers. And... Uh, She was also in Gummo. Um, (laughs) uh, Harmony Corinne's Gummo as um, Solomon's mom. Everyone knows Solomon. He's he's the kid in the bath eating spaghetti, drinking strawberry milk. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, she's been in some good stuff. Um, You know, she was also in the game with uh, Michael Douglas and. So she's been in some pretty good stuff. And so basically after a long overdue visit to Dennis Hopper's character, Don, in prison, we get the sense that Don has been reformed and feels shame. Um, and but, but but he's a man. He's going to go back to his family. So he's, he's served his time. And after a really kind of heartfelt visit from uh, CB and her mother, Kathy, played by Sharon Farrell. So the movie has different levels. It always has these levels of extremes taking place. And it's not rather everything is extreme or it's not extreme. It's re- it, like everything is sort of. Everything in this movie has this kind of weird tension to it and the tension kind of ramps up um suddenly um <laughs> um throughout the movie and just as in the beginning we had the we had the semi dawn semi hitting the school bus and then we jump to cb and kathy visiting him in prison and it's you know it's through the glass and and um and you can tell that there's a genuine family love and connection there and they had, they're finally they had this this nightmare of don being in prison is um is coming to an end and he's coming home so but this movie is like playing with your emotions constantly it's, <laughs> which is i don't know I don't, I don't want to say that's Dennis Hopper's style but it's it's something that he's He's able to uh he's able to do in his films very well yeah he's able to put in little uncomfortable moments that hint at impending doom <laughs> um such as in a scene where uh c b and some of her uh girlfriends they go out to the local bowling alley and we're introduced to Don's best friend Charlie played by Don Gordon. And Charlie is sitting at the bar and he's sort of oogling CB and her teenage friends. Very pervy little moment. And CB's mom, Kathy... Um, also, let me point out a thing about Kathy. <laughs> uh, that, well, specifically the actress Sharon Farrell. Um, you may recognize her as the character of Lenore... From the 1974 film It's Alive Which I did a whole episode on Uh, It was on episode 27 Of Skeleton Factory Uh, It was titled In this movie Yeah In this movie the baby aborts you Yes that's from episode 27 And um, Yeah And Kathy is Well (laughs) Sharon Farrell is in that film, and yeah, check out the It's a Live series too. Halloween's coming up, and you're gonna want to watch some spooky movies. And if you want to watch just sort of like, like a classic monster movie, that's really, really unique. It's a weird film. If you're a fan of Stranger Things, <laughs> I try to, I try to recommend things that maybe people would, uh, you know. Compared to things that you may like, you know, um, if you like stranger things, look at, we'll go watch. It's alive. They made three films and they're all pretty good. So anyways, uh, oh, <laughs> well, also, you know, since, um, Halloween season is, uh, is coming up. Uh, Sharon Farrell was also the evil stepmother Doris in, uh, Night of the Comet. Night of the Comet is fun. It's a weird concept for a movie. And uh, it's basically like... um, There's a... Well, there's a comet coming to destroy Earth. And somehow... Everyone in this uh, city disappears. And it's sort of... you, You see it from the perspective of these two teenage girls. So it's not like a... Uh, Roland Emmerich, end-of-the-world film. It's like... <laughs> it's, it's like... End-of-the-world from the perspective of two teenage girls who are just, you know, having a good time. And um, <laughs> Night of the Comet, it's lovely. Uh, check it out. And uh, so, let's jump back to uh, Sharon Farrell as Kathy. And she's, she's dating her uh, boss, uh, character of Paul played by uh, Leon Erickson. Uh, But in this film, he was uh, credited as Eric Allen. Uh, This is his, I believe, his one and only acting roles. He he mostly was an art director for such films as uh, The Last Movie, which was directed by Dennis Hopper. And also um, Up in Smoke, which was directed by Lou Adler, who directed Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stain. So there's a lot of connections And all these sort of movies throughout the 80s. And you just kind of see all these people who all work together. It's I I find it interesting at least. So Paul is dating Kathy. And is her boss at this kind of shitty little local diner. And Kathy's waiting for her husband who's coming out of prison... And there's like this creepy sexual link between old Charlie and it's weird, right? So she she definitely has the intention of getting back together with Dennis Hopper and resuming their family um, <laughs> once he comes back home. But also she's having an affair with her boss and um, Don's best friend. Charlie is very touchy feely with her to suggest there's been some sort of like they fucked around in the past you know and that's one of those things that's sort of like those little those little moments of tension where you're like okay I'm starting to see what's going on here maybe Kathy is not the um, attentive perfect woman that we all uh, kind of were led to believe she was but so she's Balancing all these precarious relationships and well actually <laughs> Well she is, but also you, the audience member, you're balancing all these precarious relationships in your head, and you know at some point all of this will come tumbling down. So it's sort of that impending doom I was talking about earlier and um let's see, Charlie. Um gotta mention Charlie, of course. Um, played by Don Gordon. He he actually has a very interesting career. Um, he's been in a lot of really cool shit, and you may uh, recognize Charlie uh, Don Gordon from uh, Exorcist Three, and and the film The Borrower, starring Tom Tolles. You'll know Tom Tolles. He was uh, he was the character of Otis in Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. He was also in uh, uh, Devil's Rejects. So there you go. Put that. Add all these to your Halloween watch list. Watch. It's just three. Also, if you're watching the uh, Dahmer Netflix series, which I'm, I'm, um, more than halfway through right now, and it's pretty good. I like it a lot. I know I know a lot about Jeffrey Dahmer somehow. You know what? If you were a teenager in the '90s, you kind of know you have a pretty decent knowledge of serial killers. Cause back then serial killers were like on television all the time, you know, Charles Manson's parole hearings were always aired on TV. And I mean, Jeffrey Dahmer had a fucking like prime time network interview with his father. <laughs> so it's like, you'd be sitting there and you're like, you know, 12 or 13. And you'd be sitting there with your parents watching Jeffrey Dahmer getting interviewed on TV. It's fucking strange. Um, But Jeffrey Dahmer, his favorite film was Exorcist 3. Very interesting. So, um, yeah, add those to your movie watch list. Anyways, uh, what was the point of that? Oh, yeah, Don Gordon. He was in some good movies. Um, so So now we get a chunk of scenes and that's more centered around the character of CB. So, CB is, uh, we get, we get a chunk of scenes where she's hanging out with her friends, but we even, but even in her friend group, she stands out. She's different. She's got some of, she's got some of that Dennis Hopper wild streak in her, you know? So CB has, to me has this, um, she's a very relatable 15 year old, you know? Um, when i when i see cb i kind of see some of my how i was when i was 15 so um what about cb well she has a healthy love for elvis for punk rock and and a need to uh you know have the occasional drink maybe get high but but she doesn't have the ideal, that 70s show friend group. You know, she's more of a loner, which I was too. I mean, I I don't know, kind of my later, the kind of later three quarters of high school, I, I definitely had like a huge friend group, but we were, but we were all just partying buddies, really. Um, <laughs> we weren't really lifelong friends or anything like that, but I had that friend group, but but um, even even then, it was like I was still pretty much like a loner. I just can't... I don't know, I don't... I, I, <laughs> I, just, I just didn't really like people back then, I guess. So this whole thing of like going out unsupervised and encountering all these weirdos of the world, I really relate to totally. Um, and that's kind of how... You know, that, that's how it was, you know, you fucking go out, you, you know, you have a curfew. I remember when my curfew was when my parents were like, OK, your curfew's 11, 11 o'clock at night. And that's when I was in junior high. So, yeah, seventh, eighth grade, 11 o'clock at night. I don't, I don't know if that was that's weird. Now, it seems like that would be weird. Somebody now wouldn't want their 12, 13 year old out at 11 o'clock at night, alone. But, that, I mean, that's... Even my friends, my friend group in junior high, they weren't like that. They they were all, like, good kids who were trying to rebel, and I was, like... I was a pretty good kid, but I was... My parents... Is that that they didn't give a fuck? They were just, like... Hey, be home by <laughs> 11. Like they loved me, but... You know, they were a lot looser with... They, they, they valued that I valued my time and let me kind of go and fuck off and get into trouble. And I probably should have been more supervised, you know, in retrospect, but you know, I do enjoy that. you kind of, they, they gave me that kind of freedom. And that's kind of how CB's little world is in, in, in the movie. So, so again, I can totally relate to C uh, CB's little world One thing I can't relate to is um, the amount of fucking bell bottoms in this movie. Holy shit. There's a few scenes where it's just a bell bottom overload. But this movie was made at the tail end of the 70s. So I guess I shouldn't be too surprised. So there's a scene where after coming home to discover her mom doing heroin with Charlie in the living room, CB just kind of like takes off. And hitchhikes, she hitchhikes regularly, like she kind of lives in a little country town, and she usually has to like hitchhike to get out of town to go do shit, and um, this is one of her, which one thing I didn't really do, I did hitchhike a few times as a kid, but you know, not on the level CB does, it's like, that's that was her Uber (laughs) back then was just flagging down a car for a ride into town. And there's also that in Ladies and Gentlemen The Fabulous Stains. There's a there's a scene in the beginning where um where our main characters they like flag down a car and they're like, Can we get a ride into town? <laughs> it's like different times. So CB not wanting to hang around or her mom and Charlie doing heroin together. She uh hitchhikes, um Out of town, and we follow her on her uh, excursion out to um, Vancouver. So, okay, this movie it was shot in Canada, but I don't think Dennis Hopper, uh, when he directed this, intended for it to be uh, for it to come off as it's Canada. I think he wanted it to come off as it was in America. And um, on the commentary track, the director's commentary track on it, he 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 said he did try to fit in as much Americana as possible. So, you know, he would have, you know, when CB's at school, he would have, he would show the football team and cheerleaders and parades and, you know, things that he thought kind of represented Americana, you know, pickup trucks and motorcycles and fucking country music and all these little things that are sprinkled throughout the movie that if you just watch it you wouldn't be like oh this is canada you'd be like oh this is kind of rural america and but no it's in fact it is it is canada that this movie takes place in so um so cb hitchhikes out to vancouver which i don't know which city they're trying to convey that it is but it's obviously a larger city and while while uh, while out in the city, um, this is, okay, this is, at this point of the movie, Ever like the rest of the movie just kind of, until you get to the end, that is, but a giant chunk of the middle, the beginning and middle of the movie just feel like we go from random scene to random scene that don't feel entirely connected. Like the events of one scene don't really affect the events of the next scene, but, but you feel like those seemingly unconnected scenes are on the same timeline. It's weird. It's weird how it's structured. But we get this one scene where CB jumps into a cab, and her driver, her and her cab driver bond over their love for um, for uh, music. Specifically, punk music and a hatred for disco music. This was in the era of the uh, disco sucks, (laughs) like uh, era, which was very much a uh, an American sort of uh, cultural movement. And uh, the cabbies who the cabbie he looks like a Big John Stud. If you ever watch pro wrestling in the 80s, you'll know Big John Studd. Big John Stud was also in one of my favorite buddy movies of all time called Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man starring Mickey Rourke and Don Johnson. Big John Studd's in that. That's a good movie. You should watch it. <laughs> so, anyways, the cab driver, uh, I'm just going to call him Big John Studd because I don't think we actually learned his name, uh, invites her over to his apartment slash uh, whorehouse to go smoke some weed and I mean it's I mean once you see the kind of state of this sketchy ass apartment that he lives in you're like oh no this is this is not like some dude who's like oh let's let's fucking go smoke weed in front of the fucking Seven Eleven. this is like come to my creepy apartment and let's smoke some weed little girl it's kind of one of those situations and I mean the place looks like like you're expecting Robert De Niro to come in with a mohawk and start shooting everybody. That's what the fucking place looks like. So So once they're there they, you know, they blaze some they blaze some uh some Mota for Jaw and um they're hanging out and the cabbie's hooker girlfriend who's just sitting quietly in the corner is she's, she's sitting in this chair and she just has her skirt hiked up and she's like smoking a cigarette and her like just vagina, her vagina bush is just out in the middle of the room and it pointed at a CB and CB gets, CB's, uh, CB's, okay, let me get, uh, so CB's kind of a small girl. Like Linda Mance was 18 when they shot this, but she was, she played a 15 year old, but. I mean, she could have played a fucking 12-year-old. I mean, that's how small of a person Linda Mance is. And sort of, she comes off younger than 15, even though she was a, an illegal adult in this movie. So um, it wasn't one of those uncomfortable situations where they're like, <laughs> let's put a woman's vagina in the same room as a child and film it. No, Linda Mance was, in fact, a adult when they shot this. So the girlfriend sitting there with her uh, vagina bush out like i said earlier cb uh gets instantly stoned and then she like curls up into a ball on the bed and starts uh sucking her thumb which is sort of this self soothing habit that cb does throughout the movie and um which says a lot because she's 15 at this point she's still sucking her thumb so you can tell there's still a lot of um i don't know childhood trauma still kind of that she's carrying around and that's sort of her coping mechanism thing. And so the hook, so the hooker figures that um, maybe this poorly lit room they're in maybe uh, may limit her um, vagina Bush uh, visibility. So she, she gets up and strolls over to the bed where CB is and busts a, like a captain Morgan pose on the edge of the bed uh, and Big John Stud without without saying a word almost there's almost no talking going on the whole scene. Big John Stud like rolls CB over so she can get a clearer view of his prized hooker girlfriend's uh, vagina, and obviously some kind of sexual advance is taking place. So CB uh, gets up and before anything can really escalate. <clears throat> uh, she grabs a nearby bottle and smashes it over uh, John studs head and then runs out the door. So um, <laughs> it was a weird fucking scene, but it's another one of those creepy scenes punctuated with almost no dialogue at all, which makes it even more uncomfortable. Um, And there's, there's a, there's a small handful of that in the movie of just scenes where little to no dialogue and people are just being fucking creepy and it just makes your skin crawl and like I said earlier this it, that that sort of uh that that feeling Dennis Hopper is giving you in this movie kind of it, it you know it's it's amped up and it's pulled back kind of constantly you know there's never really too many moments where you you feel uh, happy and carefree and feel like everything's going to be okay. But, um, so these chunks of scenes in, um, uh, of CB's trip to Vancouver are basically, like I said before, kind of, they, they seem kind of unconnected, even though they're inside the same trip. It's just like this thing happens and then this thing happens and then this thing happens. And it, and it all takes place in one day. Like, you kind of, watching that, you understand that all this takes place in one day. So, imagine, okay, imagine this. Imagine Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, meets the movie Kids. That's kind of, that's kind of what this little chunk of the movie is like. So, so after the, <laughs> after CB escapes from uh, John Studd and his, uh, his lovely girlfriend's uh, vagina advancements, uh, we jump to a punk show starring the band, uh, the pointed sticks, which is an actual Canadian kind of punk band. They're very poppy, but they're, they're, a, they're a fun little band. And the continuity of the scene is kind of weird. The scene opens up with the pointed sticks song um, out of luck. And there's one band playing on stage. And then suddenly there's a couple of, cuts to the crowd and then we cut back to the stage and it's actually the band, the pointed stick. So, like the band. So the band on stage literally like flips within like a couple of seconds. And I don't know. I just found it really um, like I noticed it and it wasn't like terribly distracting, but I was like, Oh, that was a kind of a lazy fucking edit. (laughs) Maybe Dennis Hopper was nodding off while fucking editing this thing or something. I don't know not a huge deal but it's something i notice. also it's clear they're playing the pointed sticks are uh, playing a different song than what is being heard so you kind of get the, the like the concert scene where everyone's fucking pogoing and and going crazy and shit and the band's playing but it's rather the they're they they are playing the song out of luck but it's like it's not synced to the singer's mouth and the band's instruments or it's like they're playing a completely different song and out of luck is just playing on top of it I can't can't quite tell but I don't know I thought that was weird but after after the after the punk show the CB steals a car and gets caught but um, you know looks like she had a fun time <laughs> she had a fun time in the city that day. So, CB, being a minor, she's able to get away with, um, you know, stealing a car with like a slap on the wrist. And we get a scene where, uh, oh, God. Okay. So, we get this scene where ent- enter suddenly Raymond Burr appears in this movie, which is, uh, it's weird because Raymond Burr was kind of, um, I don't know, he was an elder statesman in the acting world at that point. So, this movie kind of, had all these character actors and sort of like first-time actors in it, and um, all of a sudden, Raymond Burr appears, it's weird, and he plays a sort of court-ordered child psychologist guy who, from what I understand, is only in the film because, and I could be wrong, but from what I understand, in order to shoot a movie, to have an American film production in Canada, at least at the time this movie was made you have to have a prominent Canadian actor in the film hence Raymond Burr who's Canadian and um yeah and, and Raymond burrs he's fine in it you know he's he always I don't know he's, he has a very authoritative presence he, he's a very um I mean he was Perry Mason man he was Ironsides <laughs> you know He. He just looks like somebody who's uh, uh, knows what the fuck is going on, and uh, looks like he's filled with wisdom, you know. So, yeah, they needed a prominent actor, hence Raymond Burr's in the movie, in only two scenes, which is funny. And he's just sitting at a desk in both scenes. Like you can tell, he, they're like, "All right, re- all right, Raymond, you don't have to really fucking do anything. You just have to just sit there and just read the lines. It's fine." And uh, yeah. But yeah, Raymond Burr, you'll know him as Perry Mason. Uh, he was in Godzilla 1985, <laughs> if you're a Godzilla fan. And um, here, here's, a, here's a fun fact. Uh, he was also the OG host of uh, Unsolved Mysteries before Robert Stack um, took over the show and made the show. Whatever, everyone knows the show as being hosted by Robert Stack, you know, but he's got that iconic voice. But yeah, um, but yeah, we, um, uh, rest in peace to Raymond Burr. He passed away some time ago, and as well as Robert Stack. Hey, you know what? Rest in peace to the both of them. So finally, we jump to, um, uh, Dawn finally comes home. It's like, so we have all this, we established life outside of prison. Um, and, and finally, Don gets out and he has a, comes home to like a big homecoming party and it's nice right home sweet home but once dawn and charlie get back together at the party that is you know best friends reunited we kind of get a glimpse of what of what their friendship is and it's basically two drunk asshole buddies just having a good time and they seem like they seem old enough to not be this fucking rowdy, but uh, but they are, <laughs> and you kind of, you get uh, you get a sense of that pretty much immediately once they're uh, reunited. So we get a nice scene of one of uh, this is at the party scene, right? We get a we get the scene of one of of the fathers um, of the dead children from the the bus accident in the beginning of the movie. So basically, one of the, Children that Don killed, one of their fathers walks into the party to kind of confront Don, but Charlie and Don end up just kicking him out. And it's a really good scene, but Don may have, I don't know, Don may have enough shame and humility to at least, you know, give the dad a, um, you know, maybe a little more than a lukewarm apology and at least offer him to sit down and have a drink. Um, But, but he's still a, a grieving father, but, and I know, uh, and it seems like Don can understand that, but like Charlie could give two shits. (laughs) So, So Don and Charlie end up just kicking the guy out and stuff. And it's, it's just a reminder that Don, may have did his time, but he hasn't really faced the families that are affected by him. And I mean, he hasn't even faced his own family. So let alone (laughs) the family of all the children he killed. So, so now that Don's out of uh, prison, he gets a job at the local dump driving a bulldozer. And, you know, we, now we get a little, now we get some kind of some Don scenes, Okay, and we had our little chunk of C B scenes. Now we get some Don scenes and Don gets a he gets his bulldozer job at the dump and he drinks on the job. We get a scene where he goes and picks up C B from school and he's like drinking a beer when he goes and picks her up. <laughs> he doesn't he hasn't learned a fucking thing. And um Don while uh <laughs> there's a scene while Don is, uh, running around the, in, in like the landfill chasing seagulls and he's drinking a, like a pint of whiskey at work, of course. And, um, he steals like a bundle, like a few sticks of dynamite, <laughs> like a bundle of dynamite with a fuse. And, um, and he's probably gonna, I don't know, end up selling it or doing something with it, but you're just, he's, like CB's there and he's like hey check check out what I swiped from work I stole some dynamite so again Don's a bit of a drunk asshole so same so that that same disgruntled dad from the party goes to see Don's boss and it's a scene where there's really there's no dialogue there's just kind of music playing and you're just seeing the reactions of uh you know the the characters so there's a scene where the grieving dad goes to see Don's boss at the dump and like he's talking to the boss but what does he tell his boss we don't know and Don gets fired and is told by his boss to like get out of the bulldozer and get the fuck out of the landfill you're fired and Don does but not before driving his bulldozer through the boss's little office shack thing and um <laughs> cause if you're gonna get fired you might as well fucking destroy a bunch of shit on the way out right So Don tells Charlie at the bar that night about uh, getting fired and the dude that fired him. He's like, oh, dude, it's the same guy from the fucking party who came in. And uh, Charlie's like, oh, that motherfucker. And then we just hard cut to Don and Charlie, like, sneaking up on that guy. (laughs) Like, and and like hitting him over the head with a pipe (laughs) and stealing his fucking briefcase. And um, what's in the case? Don't know. Probably money, right? Um, so they basically <laughs> assault the guy, maybe kill him. Who knows? They assault the guy and rob him. So Don was like the proto Frank Booth character from David Lynch's Blue Velvet. So that's kind of what new Don is. He's sort of this. Um, I don't know. Uh, that's what it feels like. It feels like the Don would later become Frank in Blue Velvet. You know he's sort of uh, likes to party. He's violent and he's uh, not afraid to do some crimes um, for monetary gain, apparently, and revenge. So, the idea of Don getting out of prison and reuniting with his family is not quite going as well as hoped. And also, <laughs> Kathy is now nursing this like heroin problem that Don. Um. I don't even know if he's even aware of, but basically Catley's whole uh, heroin, uh, her whole heroin addiction is being fed by Charlie. Like Charlie's like her dealer. And so, you know, that's healthy. And and Don and Don is just a drunk de- degenerate, basically. And CB is messing up in school and she's on the verge of getting expelled. So we get a couple scenes um, kind of highlighting that and a second scene with Raymond Burr with just him and cb in that particular scene and and it's indicated that um by raymond burr that cb may be removed out of her parents custody so not only is she fucking up at school but like she may you know i don't know whatever canadian child protective services is like she might the the court may just take CB out of her uh, parents custody and stuff so so things are bad you know things are not going so well you know the the, the great reuniting of this family uh, turns out is sort of a disaster so the this, this family was destined to fuck up at some point and and that some point is now so we're winding down this episode, everybody. Okay, so <laughs> just, just let you know. Um, so now we're we're, we're going to wind down the story. So back at the house, Don, Charlie, and Kathy are knocking back some drinks. Kathy's banging some heroin in the fucking bathroom, and um, they're all just kind of hanging out in the kitchen, getting shit faced. And CB's up in her room, and it's an interesting scene now, like. CB is decked out in Don's old biker leathers. It's like leather jacket, leather daddy fucking hat. And she's like greasing back her hair. <laughs> Very sloppily, by the way, uh, greasing back her hair with like hair grease and. Um, well, like her hero, Elvis Presley. And what is she up to? We don't know, but down in the kitchen, Dennis Hopper, who uh, he basically um, screams about 99% of all of his lines. As per usual in films, I notice, you know, Dennis Hopper's, you know, he's like Nicolas Cage. If he's yelling his lines, it's like the performance is just that much better, you know? So it's this whole thing where <laughs> Dennis Hopper's yelling about like, we never see, see CB with any boys and she's probably never been kissed and. And then he gets this idea of like, yo, Charlie, you should go upstairs and fuck my teenage daughter, which is disturbing. So now we have this sort of in incestual, you know, rapey situation that uh, Don is proposing. And he's basically like, hey, how about the three of us? Let's all go up there and just deflower the young thing and, you know, make sure she's not a dyke. (laughs) <laughs> that's basically that that's basically what that was all about he's just like um let's make sure our daughter isn't a dyke let's go upstairs and charlie you fucker with your fucking 50 or 50 year old man penis it's very disturbing and dyke is not my word these are the words that are spoken in the movie okay so calm the fuck down um I don't know. It's got some weird, it's like weird chasing Amy logic. It's like the whole idea was like, oh, a lesbian, all a lesbian needs is a good deep dicking and she won't be a lesbian anymore. So that's like what Dennis Hopper thinks is going on with CB. He can't just accept that. Like he's got a wild teenage daughter who's not like a slut. She's just, you know, kind of a loner weirdo. And you know, like, wh- like what? It, what the fuck does her sexuality have to do with anything? So, of course, like I said, he's he, <laughs> he's like yelling all of this, and CB can hear all this from her room, and CB hears all this from her room, and like basically locks herself in her room, and she like picks up a chair, like she's taming a lion or something. So she's basically, she's basically arming herself with a chair because she can hear them coming up the stairs and Don ends up kicking down the door, but Charlie and Kathy sort of like lose their nerve. You know, they're not with this whole like, Hey Charlie, go fuck my daughter. Uh, you know, scenario that Don wants to put forth. And after, you know, they break into the room and after shedding some angry tears and slapping Don a few times, um, CB kind of, like, brings them, kind of, makes Don come to his senses. And and they leave the room, and Kathy also kind of comes to her senses, and she, at this point, lost her way as a nurturing mother. Like, her story arc is, she was... In the beginning of the movie, she was kind of a C-plus mom, and by the end of it, she's, like, an F-minus mom, pretty <laughs> pretty much. So now... So, the walls of CB's room are, there are tons of photos and posters and collages of Elvis, as well as some uh, punk band paraphernalia. Okay, this is going to be just an aside. Okay, I know I'm going off on a tangent, so I'm aware of that. Here comes the tangent, okay? So, she has all this stuff on her walls, including, like... Kind of, kind of like a, a poster of um, Public Enemy and the Subhumans. Now, when I was watching this, I was like, were well, those bands, those bands weren't even fucking around in 1979, 1980." And so, um, so just for clarification, it's not the Subhumans nor the Public Enemy you may be thinking of. There was indeed another Public Enemy band. It was like a rock band. That use the exact same logo, the same stencil, Public Enemy. Um, and, th- and this band was like eight years before the like Chuck D Flavor Flav Public Enemy. Okay, it's it's so <laughs> so Chuck D and Flavor Flav may have poss- possibly ripped off the logo from this like random rock band that was called Public Enemy. That's all I'm saying, and um. Actually, and also what's even weirder is there was a punk zine called Public Enemy that started in 1979 in Vancouver and also had the exact same font as the Chuck D Public Enemy and the rock band Public Enemy. You know, it's a weird coincidence. But there was... (laughs) It might not even be a coincidence. Who knows? But uh, there was also... It's, there was a little poster that said the subhumans and it was and um i don't know this is just weird punk trivia i guess there were i was a huge fan of the british band the subhumans um when i when i was around cb's age um age actually and my my first subhumans record was um, the it was called the ep lp and it was four eps on one record it was uh, demolition war Reason for existence, religious wars, and evolution on one record. Good shit. Uh, <laughs> check out the British subhumans; they're really good. And if you want to hear a kind of poppier, cleaner version, uh, I don't know. Look at the uh, check out the Canadian subhumans as well. Anyways, that, that tangent is over. Let's get back to the movie. So, so later, CB catches a glance this is a little later on after this whole incident where they almost, uh, Don almost made Charlie rape his daughter. Um, later on, um, CB's laying in bed and she, and her doors open and then across the hall, her parents' doors open. So CB and us, the audience catch a glance of, uh, Don's flaccid dick getting sucked by Kathy in the bedroom, um, through the open door down the hall. And, um, Again, everything, <laughs> everything in this movie is just getting uncomfortably amped up. And um, and then we cut to a little bit later that night and Don and drunkenly kind of shows up in CB's room and he's knelt down next to her bed and CB sneaks up. Well, she sits up rather and um, she sparks a joint and is kind of sitting there on the bed, sort of spread Eagle and like a little nightgown and panties, which is uncomfortable. Cause Linda Mance again comes off like she's like 12 or 13. So, and, um, and then she's like, do you like what you see daddy? And, and Don realizes CB and it, the dialogue's weird. So you can kind of miss it if you're not listening for it. Um, Don realizes that CB probably rem- She, probably uh, remembers some type of sexual abuse that she sustained from Don in the past. And, and CB definitely remembers it. Um, But it's the only time it's ever brought up. And she pulls out a, she pulls out a random pair of black panties and stuffs it in Don's mouth and then slaps him. And what is the significance of the panties? I don't know, but there's like this sort of weird um, incest porn BDSM vibes going on and, she grabs him by the hair, and I think the audio is a little weird, especially the the DVD that I have of this. It's like some Anchor Bay four x three fucking aspect ratio copy, and I think she grabs him by the hair, and he still has the panties in his mouth, and she's like, she's like, take a good smell, and like pulls his head towards her crotch, and then. She draws out a pair of scissors from behind her back and then stabs Don in the fucking neck multiple times. Blood gushes everywhere. He falls down on the floor and Don is dead. So very shocking indeed. And then, so then we cut to CB goes and wakes up Kathy and she's donning this, like she's a fresh safety pin that's through her cheek and uh, she's still dressed in Don's old fucking leathers and stuff. And, She's basically like, wake up, Kathy. I need to talk to you right now. And they they go outside and hop into Don's old semi-truck from the the beginning of the movie. And it's all smashed and fucking it's just sitting in front of their house. And um, it's been just sitting on the property, you know, rotting away for, I guess, the past five years while Don's been in prison. In, uh, in prison. So, so this is where CB wants to talk to Kathy in the middle of the night. And <laughs> so once in the truck in the, in the cab of the truck, CB is, uh, she lights this long fuse and understandably Kathy is worried. She's like, what the fuck is this? And CB's like, uh, she explains it as like, Oh, don't worry. This is just like a punk gesture. Like Sid vicious. When, when he died, he took his loved ones with him. This is what CB says. And by this, I, Think she must be referring to Sid Vicious murdering his wife, Nancy, and then, but later dying of a drug overdose. I don't don't know. You know, uh, child logic, right? So (laughs) so there's this long fuse uh, burning and then boom, the truck fucking explodes, killing the both of them. And now the tr- the truck is just engulfed in flames. Cue Neil Young's "Hey Hey My My," roll credits, the end. <laughs> and that was out of the blue. And I recommend it. I think it's very good. Criterion just put out a fresh, beautiful, digitally remastered uh, version. I don't own that. Um, maybe I will someday. It's got a bunch of extras that I've never seen. And, um, good movie. Very good movie. Um, this um, wouldn't be the last time Dennis Hopper would work with Neil Young. Because um, Neil Young's music is kind of throughout the movie. And um, wouldn't be the last time Dennis Hopper would work with Neil Young. Two years later, in um, they were in a movie together called Human Highway that starred Neil Young it's kind of weird um you know he's not really known as an actor but they were in human highway together in 1982 a and it's a more lighthearted film where neil young and and devo <laughs> do a much different but enjoyable version of hey hey my my in the movie so that's fun if you if you're a neil young fan and um, you never heard the, <laughs> the hey hey my my uh collaboration uh devo with the default version, um, also Neil Young co-directed the film um, Human Highway with uh, Dean Stockwell, who you may recognize as the character of Ben from the 1986 David Lynch film Blue Velvet, starring Dennis Hopper. So there you go; it's everything is connected. And yes, Dennis Hopper. Got to mention Dennis Hopper. He passed away in 2010 at the age of 74. But he has given us so much wonderful entertainment for people like me to just sit around and talk about. So rest in peace, Dennis Hopper and Linda Manns. Linda Manns, uh, who played CB, sadly also passed away in 2020 at the age of 58. And um, she didn't have like the longest film acting history, but she always turned in really strong performances. So she will also be missed. All right, that's the end of the episode. I hope you all enjoyed it. There's three movies about rebellious teenage girls. And um, I definitely recommend all these films. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains, Smithereens, and Out of the Blue. I gotta get out of here. You could uh, keep up with me on Instagram at skeleton underscore factory. That's where I announce when and what the um, future episodes will be. You can also um, I also post the same kind of promo stuff on Twitter at sfpodcastATx and you can become a patron and support the show at patreon.com forward/Skeleton Factory. And I do episodes that are um, uh, actually have guests on some of those episodes. So I'm sitting there actually talking to somebody besides uh, myself alone in a room like I am right now. <laughs> but it's a lot of fun. And I tend to do more uh, more newer films like stuff that's streaming or in theaters and whatnot. But if you can go there and support the show, that would be great. Um, what else? That's it. All right. Thank you all for listening. I am your host, Adam, and this has been the Skeleton Factory Podcast. Rescuing your movie night one movie at a time. I will catch you on the next one. Bye. Bye.